but yeah, today we're, we're third week in our Judges series. Uh, and just yesterday, I had, a, I had a pretty heavy conversation with someone in my extended family. And they're just really feeling, I guess, buffeted uh, by a whole bunch of suffering at the moment. Uh, for them, work is just a nightmare. Uh, it's not going well. Uh, one of their close, lifelong friends uh, died recently. Um, there's some really complex pain and hurt in the family that's not going to go away in a hurry. Uh, it's a very complex situation. Uh, and they were, they were just sort of feeling overwhelmed. Uh, you know, just that, I, I pictured that ship on the ocean, far too big waves, far too much wind, just buffeted this way and that. Uh, and I think we can, well most of us will be able to empathise with that, that there's times in our lives where you just feel like there's just too much not going right uh, in a whole realm of things. You look around uh, in the world, in our lives, and there's things that distress us, uh, personal suffering, suffering the family. Um, or maybe you look around and you actually see others who are successful and wicked, uh, who are doing well and in life, and, and it doesn't look like they deserve it. Maybe it even, from your perspective, looks like they don't deserve it. Um, or maybe it's just the general suffering and brokenness, and <clears throat> you can find yourself asking, well, what is God doing? If you believe in God, if you believe that he's in control, uh, the Bible says, hey, God's, God's got a plan for all things. The Bible says that pretty clearly. Well, all things, really? This, this mess? Uh, this suffering? What is God doing? What is going on? Uh, can or even should I trust him in this? Well, in this book of Judges, uh, from the Old Testament that we're, we're working through, it is a really good place to look for answers in times of suffering. Uh, it's God's word recorded for us. Uh, and like all of God's word, it teaches us about his character. Uh, the Bible does that. It teaches us about, about who God is. Uh, it teaches us about the nature of this world and the nature of God's relationship with people. Uh, now, there is plenty of suffering in Judges. If you haven't read it, brace yourself. Uh, there's plenty of pain, lots of inequality, and it raises these questions of well, what on earth is God doing? And in chapter, t chapter 3 that we're looking at tonight, we get some answers uh, as, as we live in this world of suffering um, where it's often not the best people who do well. That's one of the things we'll look at today. So today, first, we're going to step through this, this account that is just full of violent suffering. There we are, that one. Uh, this account's just full of violent suffering. Um, and what we'll do is we'll just look through the story. Uh, chapter 3, this story of Ehud, uh, or Ehud, depends how you pronounce it, and Eglon. Um, we're going to get the overview. We'll go through that pretty quickly. Uh, and then I'm going to pull out three observations. Uh, three uh, helps, I think, and insights from this passage uh, that should help us in these times of suffering in our lives. And the three times that this hopefully will help us is when suffering happens, particularly in your life. Uh, when you're suffering, uh, I think this passage will help. Uh, we're going to see uh, how this helps when the wicked are thriving, uh, when those who aren't, aren't good, aren't doing the right thing, they're not honourable, are doing well. Uh, and there's encouragement and hope for when it's hard for us to trust God. So let's pray and then we'll jump into this chapter. Father God, we thank you and praise you that uh, you don't leave us on our own in this world. Uh, you, you give us your word, you give us insight, you give us uh, not only knowledge, but you show us 
how we can uh, respond to this world and respond to you, uh, the God who, who made and oversees all things. Uh, we particularly uh, thank you for the book of Judges and, and the way that you don't present a, a false view of this world. We thank you that you, you are real about the, the brokenness and the suffering and the atrocities of this world. And Lord, as we, as we wrestle with real life, tonight. We, we pray that you would be speaking to us, you'll be revealing yourself to us, opening our minds and our hearts to respond well uh, to this world that you have us in. Uh, please help us to process it and be able to cope with it. Uh, and we trust that you will do that uh, in and through us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so first of all, uh, in this chapter, uh, we'll be having a look at the big picture, the, the story of Ehud and Eglon. Uh, and the context, uh, the context for chapter three, we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Um, so this isn't very long, sort of 50, 40, 50 years after Israel have escaped, been rescued from Egypt. They had their 40 years in the wilderness, a whole generation's gone past. Uh, they had the conquest of the promised land where on the whole, uh, they were victorious. They drove out most of the other very wicked and sinful nations but they didn't completely drive them out. God said, hey, these, these people are so wicked. We're talking child sacrifice wicked, like on a systemic level. Uh, they were so wicked, they should not be left in the land, but they didn't drive them out. They left pockets of these other nations and instead tried to coexist with them. Uh, and, and we learned last week uh, that they, they gave their sons in, in marriage and took their daughters in marriage uh, and they, they mingled uh, with these other people and they got sucked in. They got sucked in not only to their culture, uh, but to their religion. Uh, they looked at these farmers who could farm and their fertility gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroths, uh, and they got sucked into worshiping those gods. Uh, and what's more, the next generation, the very next generation after saw the, these, you know, who marched around Jericho and saw the walls fall down, who saw these victories, their children, it says, forgot the Lord. Yeah, the God meant nothing to them in one generation. They turn completely away from him. Uh, and that's this uh, cycle of sin. I'll see if I can throw the picture that Rob had there last week. There we go. This cycle of sin that we, we see in Judges, uh, where uh, Israel sins, they forget God. Uh, and so God, he, he, he tries to wake them up. He says, hey, you've rejected me. You've forgotten me. And by way of reminder, he sends an oppressor, another nation to oppress them. Until in their distress, not repentance, but their distress at this hardship, they cry out to God, rescue us. He delivers them with a judge, uh, a saviour. Uh, and there's a time of peace, usually until that judge dies. And then they go straight back to where they were before, worshipping the other gods, forgetting God. And the spiral continues. And that's, uh, that's, that's the cycle of the book of Judges. And we see this cycle sort of in miniature in verses 7 through 11. I won't read those, but this is the story of the judge Othniel. And it's just a real summary. Uh, Israel were evil. They'd forgotten the Lord. Uh, the Lord sent against them, uh, this time the Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram uh, Nahiram. You can see why he didn't get that one read out. Uh, they were subject to him for eight years. He raised up a deliverer, a saviour, literally, Othniel, uh, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. He s saved them from this king. They overpowered them and the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel died. That's this cycle. Um, <clears throat> and the book of Judges could be just very short, couldn't it? Uh, literally a paragraph for each judge. And next came, you know, Ehud who 
delivered the people. But it's not. It's longer. Uh, there's some judges, and we're going to work through one of them today, who have their story. We have details of their account. And it's not just a history. It's a theological history. It's a, it's a history about God, and it's teaching us. So that's what we're going to dig into today, uh, as we've seen this cycle. Um, because what happened, as soon as Othniel died, we come to verse 12, which is the first verse of this account of Ehud and Eglon. Verse 12, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Amorites and the Amalekites with him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of uh, Palms, and the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, this is just devastating, isn't it? First devastation, they forgot him. As soon as Othniel died, they went, oh, let's go back to the Baals and the Ashra. Let's, let's forget about God and keep on sinning. And explicitly, God says, uh, the Judges shows us that it's because of that uh, that, that God gave them over to, to this king of Moab. Uh, it, God didn't give them over and then they forgot him. No, they forgot him. They turned away from God and then God sent the Moabites in. Um, and he uses this King Eglon to judge, in a way, that other word for judge, bring judgment on his people. 18 long years of, of, of oppression. Now, that, that, you know, who, I don't know if we've got any 18-year-olds here. You know, how old are you now, Em? 17? 15, there you go. I'm closer than 25 anyway. There we go. 18 years of oppression. Uh, now, you might not have picked this up, but the Book of Ruth is set in this time. Uh, so the book of Ruth is set over the time of the Israelite oppression under Moab uh, and the deliverance when the, the rain comes again. Um, and, and so this, this, this oppression under this tyrannical king who is demanding grain offerings, we'll see later on. Uh, there's famine in the land of Israel and the Moabites are still saying, you still have to pay your dues to us. And there was such famine in the land that it drove Israelites to leave their promised lands and move to Moab. Uh, that's what happened with Naomi and her husband. Uh, that's, her husband died, her sons died. That's, that's when the book of Ruth is set. These years of famine, of oppression, of poverty. Um, and out of this little that they have, they've got to pay tribute to their Moabite oppressions. And finally, finally, after 18 years of oppression, finally, some Israelite goes, ah, oh, maybe we should try out to the Lord in our distress. They finally get there again. Verse 6, 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Uh, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And now I, I can remember, I grew up in church, and I can remember doing... Uh, sort of these stories, you know, as a like 10 year old boy, and you're like, oh, ho, 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 isn't this funny? You know, what's going on here? Why are these odd details? Uh, why, is it, why, why do we need to know that he's left handed? Why do we need to know about the sword he made? He didn't go down to the sword shop and buy one. No, he needed a particular sword, about a cubit long, which is either about a foot or a foot and a half, but it's a sort of short sword. If you're into uh, hunting wild pigs, it's the sort of knife, really, that you use. That's what they call them, a pig sticker. Uh, so it's a very short sword, a long knife, and he's stapped it to his uh, right thigh. And, and then we've got this weird detail about Eglon, the very fat 
king. And you're like, well, what is going on here? Now, in this society, there's a bunch of stuff we need to understand. Uh, someone who's overweight in this society, who's fat, is actually a sign of wealth. Remember, there's famine going on. This is a hand-to-mouth society. For, for thousands of years, most cultures in the world spend the, spent the majority of their time, their money, just buying food. So even at the time of Jesus, about 50% of your wage would be spent on feeding your family. That, and that was long after this, but that, that's, you know, food was a big thing. And if you could afford to work so little that you didn't burn enough calories, you were a wealthy person. So, so this, this fat king, it's, it's a sign of, of wealth, of power, of luxury. Um, and the other little things that we might have picked up is, is literally he's been fattened on the tribute that the Israelites brought him. So the word for tribute there is the same word that's used for grain, uh, the grain offering in the sacrifices. So they were bringing their grain to sort of fatten, uh, if you like, this, this wealthy king for 18 years. Uh, the whole left-handed thing uh, with Ehud, uh, the word for left-handed means literally restricted in his right hand. So it's not positively left-handed, it's negatively, oh, he can't use his right hand properly. Uh, and back in those days when military power was really important, it was important that you could fight together in lines, someone in your line of soldiers who was trying to wave his sword with the wrong hand is going to get his mate killed. Um, so being restricted in your right hand is a bit of a, oh, what a shameful thing, I've had a left-handed son and he can't fight with the other warriors. Um, so he's restricted in his right hand, so he's left-handed, uh, but uh, this has meant that he can be sneaky. Uh, because that ancient world said, well, no warrior is going to use his left hand because that doesn't work in battle. So when the security guards, King Eglon, go and pat you down to check if you've got a hidden weapon, uh, if you're right-handed, where do you draw your sword from? Your left-hand side. So they pat down the left-hand side. Oh, won't bother with the right-hand side because, you know, what silly nation would raise up left-handed warriors? Um, so it's this sneaky way of getting a short sword, probably the length of his thigh, so it wouldn't sort of stick out as he walked. Uh, he could strap it to his left hand and sneak in because he's you know, so useless because he's left-handed. You know, you're not left-handed, you're not useless if you're left-handed. It's just that culture. We, we wouldn't even suspect this guy. Um, so that's what's going on. Um, so then we come to verse 18. Um, after Ehud had presented the tribute, the grain, he sent on their way those who had carried it, you know, a lot of, lot of tribute, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his attendants, Leave us. You can get the arrogance, can't you? you know, who stays alone with someone that you're oppressing as a king? It's like, well, this left-handed guy. He is, he's no threat. No, no, leave him alone. That's fine. They all left. Ehud approached him while he's sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Now, you, what, what, I don't know what's going through uh, Eglon's mind at this moment. These think, great. I've just had, this is, this is fantastic. You know, I've been oppressing, humiliating these Israelites for years. They've just delivered this bountiful food for me and my soldiers. Uh, and now I'm going to get some sort of blessing. I'm going to get some sort of blessing from this weak, uh, restricted in his right hand, no good soldier who's just dropped it off. Uh, and, and at this point in the story, it kind of goes into slow motion. 
I'm a bit of a fan of the uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, uh, and when Sherlock, with his great big brain, uh, assesses a situation, it goes into slow motion, so all the action stops, and it's almost like Sherlock's looking around and he can calculate, oh, this man's moving here and I can do this and this. It's kind of what happens in the story. It slows right down uh, at this point. So it's all happened very fast, 18 years in a blink. As the king rose from his seat, slowed down. Ehud reached, you can hear it, with his left hand, very slowly drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. There's a 10 year old boy reveling in the gruesome detail. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out on the porch, he shut the doors in the upper room behind and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Uh, they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen on the floor, dead. Did you get that this is meant to be gory? You know, this isn't accidentally gory, it's meant to be. It's meant to be disgusting and just utterly humiliating in its defeat. Uh, the previous version of the NIV sort of sanctified it a bit, but you, you can't get away from it. The literal Hebrew words there for the, his bowels discharge were his, his anus dirt came out. Like it's, it's really explicit. You, you, and and the, 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 the servants at the door, they could smell it, couldn't they? You know, it would have been revolting. They, they're like, oh, King, oh, we can, oh, that's right, he's relieving himself. They could smell it. But they open the door and this mighty king who has been oppressing the Israelites, like what a, what a humiliating way to die for someone who 18 years before led an army and oppressed these people. There was no mighty battle, no great victory, even you're being defeated by another warrior. It's a sneaky little sneak who stabbed him in the guts and he gets found later to the point of embarrassment. We don't know how long they waited, possibly hours, dead on the floor of his palace with his bowels having discharged. It's just humiliating. It's a spectacle and it doesn't end there. The, this, the king is dead, but Ehud, he has a job to finish. So while they were waiting to the point of embarrassment, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images, escaped to Sariah. When he arrived there, he blew his trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down with him from the hills and with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him and took possession of the fords at the Jordan who, that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, a couple of little things to notice there. That word vigorous and strong uh, sometimes with the Hebrew language which the Old Testament was written in, uh, sometimes it's, it's struggle to find, well, which English words do we use? That could just as easily be translated sleek and stout, vigorous and strong. Uh, so, and I think it's meant to be sleek and stout because of this fat King Eglon. These are the troops who've been fattened on Israel's grain. It's like saying they're, they're, their skin is shiny. That's, that's, that's when you think of your, your dog's sleek. It's got a healthy coat. You know, and stout can sort of mean strong, but it's a, it's a little bit more than strong, isn't it? It's, I'm strong, but I've got a bit extra. Uh, they're, they're just like their king. They've had too much to eat and not enough extra, uh, exercise. 
They have grown, if you like, fat on Israel's tribute. And it didn't save them. Not a single one escaped. Just a complete defeat. And that leads us, that's the story. That's the story of Eglon and Ehud. And you think, whoa, what do we do with that, with this gory story? Uh, Well, here's our three observations. And the first is, I believe there is great comfort from this story, particularly for when suffering happens. Suffering in this life, whether it's the life of an individual, a family or a nation, uh, it could be suffering like this kind of suffering we find here in Judges. Uh, the, the 18 years of oppression. Now, I haven't lived through something like this. I haven't even lived through a hard economic time, really, in Australia. But the kind of oppression, the kind of famine, uh, the kind of oppression on a people that causes people to flee, that causes people to say, you know what, I would rather live in a refugee camp in Turkey for years than stay where I am. And that's, that's a whole bunch of people in Europe have fled from their country. It's so bad. There's so much oppression. There's so much poverty. They say, you know what, I'll take my chances on a refugee camp, knowing it may well be years before I get to go somewhere else. That's what, that's what happened to Naomi and her husband. They said, well, we'll just, we'll just flee this nation. Go to the nation of our enemies, our oppressors, because maybe, maybe we can survive there. Now, it's that kind of suffering. Uh, when we find this, this trouble or suffering in our lives, um, sometimes that suffering is to wake us up and bring us to repentance. Now, this is a bit of an unpopular truth, but it's a very clear teaching in the Bible. It's right there. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over the Israelites. It's not just a random chance. It's not, oh, it didn't rain and we're suffering. No, no, it's because of their evil, because of their rebellion against God, he brought this suffering on them. And sometimes, the New Testament's clear time, sometimes God's wrath, suffering, judgment, comes on us for this reason. Uh, One of the commentators I've been working with, see, they, they sort of write books about the Bible that help people like me understand it as I try and write sermons. A guy called Dale wrote this. I found it really helpful. In this particular situation, Yahweh's God's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin. See, this is trying to answer that question of how can God's wrath, how can suffering from God, how can that be a good thing? Sure, blessings from God. Yeah, thank you, God. That's a good thing. How can wrath, how can suffering from God be a good thing? Well, it's a good thing if it's calling us to repentance. If we're going the wrong direction. Uh, I, I don't like shouting at my children. I really try hard not to do it. I don't think it's a helpful way of disciplining. But I tell you what, if one of my children is running towards the road and there are cars coming, I will shout seriously and loud. Now, normally, it's not very good for my children to be shouted at like that, but I will, I will shout with anger, with whatever I need to do to, to get them to stop. That's what is happening here in Judges. And it happens in the New Testament too. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, by the Lord, and he's talking about people getting sick and dying in the previous verse, When we are disciplined, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. 
Paul says, hey, it's, it's actually when, when judgment comes, when suffering comes, because of your sin, God's being gracious. He's disciplining you, saying, hey, come back now. Turn away from whatever you're doing because this little bit of judgment in this world to get your attention, to call you back to me, I tell you what, it's a whole lot better than the eternal judgment that's coming if you keep running away from me. A shout at my child, yeah, that might traumatize them. They might cry. They might be upset. That little bit of weeping is better than getting run over by a car. That's what's happening here. Uh, God's judgment here, it's not to destroy, but to correct and restore. Now, the, the Bible's also really clear that, that there is often, um, often it's not a specific suffering because of our sin. There is, there is general suffering in the world, uh, over individuals, over nations, uh, and often that comes just because God is going to display his glory. Uh, John chapter 9, where the disciples asking that question about the blind beggar, the disciple says, hey, this guy, who sinned that he was born blind? Did he sin or his parents sinned? You know, it's one of those debates. You know, who sinned that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. He was just born blind that God's works, that God's glory might be displayed. So suffering comes in this world often not because of a particular sin, not because to teach a particular person, hey, you need to turn away from this sin. It's just, just general. And that leaves me with the question, well, how do I know which is which? Uh, sufferings come, I'm suffering, someone around me suffering. How do I know whether this is God trying to get my attention because I'm running towards a car? Or whether this is just the general suffering of this world that God might be glorified. Well, we can never be completely sure. And I would strongly, strongly uh, suggest, insist that you never prescribe into someone else's life, this is happening to you because of this thing. So unless you're God, uh, you don't know that. It's <clears throat> pretty well never, ever helpful. Usually the opposite to say, oh, that suffering's happening because of this particular thing. No, 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 leave, leave that to God. You might feel strongly for yourself, and, and, and that's a good thing. We can never be completely sure. But when suffering comes along, there's never a time or an opportunity in our lives where we shouldn't stop and consider, is God trying to get my attention? So suffering, just think about it, God's shouting. God's shouting. And just say, okay, is, is God trying to get my attention? What road, what dangerous traffic might I be running towards? Is there something in my life uh, that, that, that I've let go, uh, that I haven't been repenting of? Maybe it's gossiping, maybe it's lust, maybe it's greed, uh, maybe it's a failure to invest in others. Uh, is there something that's going on in my life that I'm running towards a road? Every time you see suffering, we should, we should just stop and ask ourselves, hey, is there something? Is this God getting my attention? And whether that suffering is particularly to cause you to repent of that sin or not, doesn't really matter. God wants you to repent of that sin. We know that. He, he loves you like a child. He wants you to turn. Maybe that suffering is to call you to come to faith in Jesus for the first time, saying, hey, you, you, you are heading for an eternity of suffering. And I'm giving you this little bit of suffering now to get your attention. Repent now and, and change your eternity from suffering to paradise. That might be what God's trying to tell you in suffering. Or, or it may be that just God's trying to grow us. There might not be a sin. There might be nothing that you've done wrong. Sort of like the book of Job. Uh, James chapter 1 sort of describes this, the, the chief goal of all suffering. 
Uh, Consider it all pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It it might not be because you've sinned. It might just be because God wants to grow you. He wants to make you a more beautiful bride for Christ. That's one of the uh, pictures the Bible uses for the church. He wants to make you more mature, deepen your faith. He wants to do this for your good. Whether it's through repentance or growth, suffering could be a call to repent, known and unknown, and to help us grow. So that's that first little one. The next two are much shorter. Uh, When suffering happens, we should seek to grow whatever way God has for us. Uh, But what about when the wicked are thriving? That other thing that can happen in life when life's not going our way is to get despondent. Uh, And just think that's 17 years of Moabite oppression. Fat King Eglon and his troops. It can lead us to say things like, well, I tried doing it God's way and that didn't work out for me. You might not say it out loud, you might just think it. You might not even think it consciously, but you think, ugh. Well, I, I, I tried doing it God's way. It's not, it's not working for me. Why bother? Why bother? I seem to be just, just about as good or bad as those wicked people. Why, why bother doing it God's way? Uh, there's the psalmist, uh, these beautiful prayers in the Old Testament. He actually, the, the psalms actually are more lament than praise. I don't know if you realise that. 150 psalms, more of them are psalms of saying, life really sucks than are saying life's fantastic. And, and I think that's helpful, because life's hard sometimes. Psalm 73, here's just a few verses. The psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel. I know this is true to those who are pure in heart, but, can you hear his agony? I know that's true, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. Goes on for verses and verses. I look at them and they're doing fine without God. And he says this, verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings me new punishments. You might have felt like this. Why bother? Surely in vain have I tried to do the right thing. Why bother? Eventually, by the end of the psalm, uh, he's deeply troubled until he enters the sanctuary of God, which seems to mean God's, God's revealed probably through scripture. I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. These wicked people, they look like they're succeeding, but surely you have placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? <clears throat> Completely they're swept away by terrors. Uh, Psalm 2 says a very similar thing. We've got these nations, these kings raging against God. And it says in uh, verse 4 there, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at them. He rebukes them in their anger. These passages, this passage in Judges 3 is saying, you might be in the middle of 17, 18 years of Moabite oppression. Your children might have been born into this. And you can't see salvation on the horizon You're starting to envy the wicked. You say, look at those fat Moabites. They're 10,000 warriors, sleek and stout. And I'm here starving. Why bother? Maybe that's life. 
And the lesson here is to say, don't be fooled. Things are going to end God's way. Yeah, 18 years of Moabite oppression, but where do the Moabites end? With their king, Eglon, on the floor, covered in his own excrement, utterly humiliated. Uh, and his troops are just dead by the, by the, the Jordan River. 10,000 troops dead, not one escaped. Sometimes justice comes in this life, but it always comes in the next. Sometimes justice comes in this life, but it always comes in the next. The wicked, the arrogant, that is, those who refuse to humbly worship and follow Jesus as saving king, will be brought to account. And there is no surer footing than to trust in the Lord, even when it's not going your way, even when you're 17 years into Moabite oppression, like Naomi in the book of Ruth. She's lost her husband. She's lost two sons. We had a look at Ruth a couple of years ago. The last verses of Ruth talk about the little baby that's born to Ruth uh, and Boaz. Uh, and this little baby is King David's grandfather, who's ultimately Jesus' ancestor. So the book of Ruth that is the most of the time is just, just depressing. Your husband's dead. Your sons are dead. Oh, I've got a daughter-in-law and she's okay. Uh, ends with this promise of a saviour. God, God wins. God wins. We know the outcome. When suffering happens, uh, we, we need to seek to grow in whatever way uh, that God has for us. And we've just seen point two, when the, uh, when the wicked are thriving, we should hang in there and stick with the victor. But what about that third one? What about when I'm struggling to trust God? See, the sheer violence and suffering in this world might make you ask, do I like this God? Maybe you look around this world and see the suffering and like David Attenborough say, I can't worship God like that. I can't trust a God like that uh, who's going to allow that kind of suffering and allow this kind of world. Now, there are a whole bunch of lessons here that we might miss because we're actually in a different culture to the culture this was written into. I don't know if you noticed the sacrificial language in this chapter. Did you pick up any language from Leviticus? Uh, probably not. We might have been giggling about the fat man. But the fat in Leviticus is one of the holy parts of the animal that was offered on the altar. You read through Leviticus and the sacrifices, the special parts of the animal that are for the Lord are the blood and the fat. They're always for the Lord. So you go, well, okay. And any Israelite, when they hear fat repeated again and again, they're going to go, oh, hang on. That sounds like a Levitical sacrifice. Uh, if you want to add to that, the, the name Eglon uh, is translated in their language to be bull or calf. So Eglon, the fat king, is literally the fattened calf. And then the phrase in verse 18 that Ehud presented the tribute is the same Hebrew phrase that used again and again in Leviticus for made the offering, made the offering. That's what the priests do. They make the offering at the temple. This is saturated with sacrificial language. Um, and so you think, okay, what have we got going on here? Well, we've got a man, Eglon, who becomes a sacrifice, uh, the fat, offered up to God to save God's people. A man who's described as a fattened calf, as a sacrificial animal. Ah, what other man in the Bible is described as a sacrifice to save God's people? What other man in the Bible is described as a sacrificial animal? As, as Eglon lay dead, uh, run through in gory detail, pierced all the way through, pierced. Huh. 
What other man has been pierced to save his people? You might remember the the, uh, promise from the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus. Well, uh, from 1 Corinthians 5 first. Christ is called our Passover lamb. Revelation again and again and again. He's called the the lamb who was slain. Uh, Isaiah 53. Jesus, he was pierced, run through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Even the humiliation of Eglon, you know, that, that utter humiliation, lying dead on your floor, not a mighty battle, just stabbed in the dark on your own with your, your excrement coming out. That's humiliating. That might remind us of Jesus, who as Paul describes him in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Some translations will say he humbled himself, humbled, humiliated, utterly. Being made in human likeness, he being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. Not just death, even death on a cross. Naked, publicly humiliated and shamed. This is a huge lesson for us that we can entrust ourselves to the one who becomes the sacrifice. See, our greatest enemy is not some outside oppressor, but our own rebellion. We see that in Judges. Ehud dies, they run straight back to their sin. The greatest problem is not some oppressor, but our own propensity to sin, to turn away from God, to rebel. And in order to save his people, God doesn't wade in like a mighty warrior, and not even like a sneaky assassin to kill our enemies, but he himself becomes the the fattened calf. He becomes the Passover lamb. He becomes the sacrifice. He takes the humiliating death on himself to offer us forgiveness, to offer us acceptance to, to save us. Amidst the humiliation and blood and gore of the cross, Jesus is is taking our sin, taking our burden, being our sacrifice to save us. And that, I think that answers the question of how can you trust a God who allows this suffering to happen? Well, you can trust the God who takes the suffering, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate humiliation becomes the sacrifice to save us. So even amid this violence and Uh, suffering of this account of Ehud and Eglon, we we have hope and encouragement. When suffering comes, we can look around and we can repent if that's necessary. Usually it is, in my experience. Very rarely do I look around and go, nope, I'm fine, I'm perfect. I've got nothing to repent of. I can't remember a time that's happened. Uh, But repent and grow. And when the wicked are thriving, uh, endure to the end. God wins. He wins spectacularly forever. Stick with him. And when it's hard to trust God, we can entrust ourselves to the one who becomes the sacrifice to save his people. Uh, Jeff's going to walk the microphone around for us. Uh, If you've got a question, stick your hand in the air. We'll get your mic. Question about the passage. No medical questions. Oh, you can always hit me up in private if it's a tricky one. Nathan's got something. Fantastic. We could always hold the questions for Rob next week, can't we, when he gets back? Uh, Just a question on suffering. 
you were saying about there's the suffering for uh, bringing about repentance, and then what was the other general suffering to bring glory to God or to, uh, to God. or to grow us in yeah, faith? It, yeah, it is like is that I guess the exclusive types of suffering, or is then just the suffering of like the wickedness of the world, mm. or would that be just encapsulated into the glory? Yeah, it's, does, does yeah. Thanks, Nate. That's a that's 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 a suffering's a huge question. Um, I think the shorter answer is even suffering that is caused by wickedness should and can ultimately bring glory to God. Now we might not know how or why. We might not even see that in this life. We often won't. Uh, but <clears throat> but we we do know that God does work all things together. Um, both for the good of those who love him and are called, but also for his glory. So um, I, I think it's, it's okay and it's right to look at some suffering and say, yeah, that's because of wickedness. But, but I, I guess a little warning in that, if we say that too strongly, there's a danger that we would discount that suffering as being inside God's plan. And how terrible is that, that suffering might have no meaning, even if it's caused by wickedness that it would be meaningless and my suffering or the suffering of my family or friends or just normal people out there who I don't know at all, uh, if, that, if that is somehow outside of God's plan and caused by wickedness, I think they're, they're not two separate, you know, we shouldn't say both those things. They, if we say that, we can say, oh, wow, that, that suffering is just meaningless. It's just caused by wickedness. Whereas the Bible says, no, 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 nothing, nothing is meaningless, uh, which is... Um, on, on the surface, uh, hard, hard to accept, but I think incredibly comforting because in, in whatever life brings, <laughs> whether it's caused by something natural or supernatural or by wickedness, whatever we see the cause as being, uh, we, we can have confidence that actually this is still within God's plan, the plan of the loving God who died for me. So um, it, can, it can even have meaning in that. Thanks, mate. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg on that. Yeah. I'm not going to make you ask more questions, so we might leave it at that. Thanks, Jeff.